Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Listeners, I'm Mark Clovis, and welcome to the fifth podcast of Arguing History, where renowned historians meet to debate some of the key points in our past. A century ago, American women were engaged in two great struggles simultaneously, participating in the war to end all wars and fighting to win the suffrage nationwide. But were these two campaigns separate, or did the efforts of women in one of them shape the result in the other? To discuss the interrelationship of women's suffrage and the First World War, we have with us today two renowned scholars of American history. First is Lynn Dumetal, who is Robert Glass Cleland Professor of American History Emerita at Occidental College and the author of The Second Line of Defense, American Women in World War I, The Modern Temper, American Culture and Society in, World, in the 1920s, and Through Women's Eyes, which she co-authored with Ellen Carroll Dubois. Lynn, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mark. The second is Christopher Kaposla, who is Associate Professor at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and the author of Uncle Sam Wants You, World War I and the Making of the Modern American Citizen, and co-curator of The Volunteers, Americans Join World War I, a multi-platform public history initiative commemorating the centennial of America's First World War. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you. Well, Chris, I'd like to start off by asking you the question, what role did World War I play in helping women get the right to vote? Well, uh, I think, I mean, it's a big question. Uh, and in, uh, to, for me, it's a question of um, the context in which a uh, century-long struggle that different women's organizations had been fighting uh, to achieve the right to vote. Um, the context suddenly changes with the war. The idea that women should vote um, was not new, um, that uh, women organizing uh, for the right to vote was not new, um, whether they would do this uh, state by state or at a national level through a constitutional amendment, that was an ongoing debate. Um, the, the extent to which they were willing to fight for, for women of color uh, and their right to vote. All of these questions are already on the table when war hits in Europe. Um, but what the war does is it changes the context in which uh, suffragist women can make their claims. Uh, and what's interesting is sometimes it makes it harder for them to make their claims. Um, people, uh, war leaders respond by saying, not now. Um, we're, you know, we're, let's not talk about this now. And sometimes it makes it easier uh, because they're able to fold their claims into the war effort. Um, so, you know, I guess probably a lot of people on your, in, on your podcast uh, respond to a question um, by saying, well, it's complicated. Um, that's, historians, that's a historian's favorite answer to every question. And, and I think it, but I think in this case, it, it is actually, it's complicated. I, I would agree with that. And I think that um, one of the ways I like to think about it, Marcus, Mark, um, uh, Chris is suggesting that we, you know, we think about how long the suffrage movement was in place, but I'm um, really interested in how intense it was right before the war between, say, 1900 and 1914. Already 11 states had enfranchised uh, women. And there's a kind of sense of excitement about 
a new woman, not just about the vote, but about more more women in the workplace, uh, women engaged in social reform, um, the birth control movement. So there's a lot going on in that period right before the war. And there's a kind of way in which this movement and particularly the suffrage movement is in place and then it hits and intersects with uh, the war. And, and as, as we are, maybe our word for the day will be, it does complicate um, things. And one, one way to, to add to what uh, Chris has already said is, you know, in the midst of a war, citizenship tends often to be defined by male military service. And so women who are trying to increase their political rights in the midst of war also have that sort of trick. They have to finesse the notion that the ultimate form of citizenship is male sacrifice on the battlefield. And that gets to an interesting question, because both of you have referenced the pre-war uh state of the women's suffrage movement. And you've, you've described that there's a degree of momentum taking that that's, that's been developing. And yet wasn't that momentum fairly uh, even, you know, more uh, compressed than just 1900, 1914. And wasn't there also a, a, a counter movement uh, that uh, had, that was doing a, a lot to try to push back against that? I mean, it, it wasn't necessarily that women were on this clear sailing path that, and, and that they were that they were definitely uh, on the cusp of, achieve, of achieving uh, national suffrage uh, prior to uh, 1914 or 1917, was it? Chris, do you want to start with that or do you want me to? Um, uh, why, don't, why don't you start? Because I think um, you've written directly about this. Okay. Um, I think, I think that's a good point that certainly, um, there are anti-suffragists and, uh, during the preparedness, um, period, right before when the European war begins, but before the United States enters, a lot of, uh, more conservative women are also people who were opposed to suffrage and they are suspicious of the suffrage movement in part because the suffrage movement um, allied very closely with the peace movement until 19, uh, well, 1917 and or 16, late 16. So there's, um, um, again, the war is complicating the story, but there's a lot of, of, of pushback against uh, organized womanhood, as it was often called. And some of it was on the part of women, other women who um, had a different take on the war and on suffrage itself. Yeah, Am I speaking to your question? Uh, yeah, you did. You did, uh, Chris. Yeah, no, I think. Um, I mean, I think that that gets at at what is what it, what changes um, during the run up to the war. But um, you know, I think just uh, I, I want let's take up Mark's question for a second. I think there, you could make an argument uh, that so there's two ways to make the argument. One is. Uh, there is this burst of organized suffrage activity between 1900 and 1914, these 11 state victories that, that Lynn talks about. And you could extend that argument and say, look, even if there hadn't been a war, uh, the momentum was building, women's roles and lives were changing, and this is going to happen. Um, and I think that that's the argument that, that, that Lynn is making. Um, I mostly agree with that, but, just, but, I, but let me make the counter argument which is to say that um, you know, there's one of the counter arguments would say, well, state by state victories by women um, were 
mostly achieved already in the states in which women were likely to achieve suffrage. Um, and so, uh, you know, in states with a lot of organized women, um, states without a lot of opposition, um, states where voting rights were less politicized. Um, so uh, outside the South, for example, where extending the right to vote uh, to women um, raised questions about denying it to African-American men. So the counter argument would say uh, there was a momentum, but it was uh, but that that momentum uh, was about to run into a brick wall, um, uh, particularly in the South. And it was only the war uh, and the kind of the, the push for thinking about everything at the federal level, um, about prohibition at the federal level, immigration, um, you know, uh, uh, taxation, uh, and ultimately women's suffrage that allowed it to come through as a national amendment. So, Lynn, I don't know, you know, if you, where, what do you think about that? Well, I, I think you make a good point, and I also you know, I think it's particularly important to raise the issue about that's a lot of the resistance to uh, suffrage had to do with race. That's mm. really important, and in fact, the white women's suffrage movement um, excluded black women suffragists from their organizations for the most part. So just as a little side note, I wanted to thank you for bringing that up. I had it on my notes but hadn't said it yet. Um, but I think here's what I think. I think that... Um, Part of the momentum that's so interesting is that women uh, particularly are shaped by young women coming into the suffrage movement with new mm -hmm. tactics. They're, they're influenced by the British who are more militant. They're starting to use modern publicity techniques. They are uh, doing the parades. The first one was in 1911 in New York, which was really quite shocking uh, at the time because it defied notions of respectability uh, in 19. 13, they had their first women's march at, a, at the presidential inauguration, which is fitting mm -hmm. to note since we have a march tomorrow scheduled. Um, and um, so I think that something, you know, something is uh, in place that is different than just the same old, same old in terms of the movement uh, and the way it's uh, and the momentum that I was talking about. However, I would agree with you that I think if it weren't for the war, it would have taken much longer to pass to pass suffrage. And Carrie Cat, uh, Catman to Cat says the war made uh, suffrage possible. And I don't think she would mean that uh, to deny all the work that went before. But I think it's true that the war is the speed up process. that's really important. Mm -hmm. The two of you reference uh, a dimension of it that uh, perhaps in thinking about the it as a uh, you know, in, in, in the positive sense of, of women fighting to achieve the vote, that probably needs to be brought in as well, which is the the, the campaigners against it. And 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 you've already mentioned the the, the female anti-suffragists. I, I was thinking about uh, another group that uh, often is brought into the mix that 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 uh, is seen as having been very uh, prominent in their opposition to the women's vote, and that was the saloon interest. And mm -hmm. I, I bring it in as in, in the way of thinking about how. You have this public discourse, this this uh, battlefield, if you will, in which you have these sides arrayed. You, they, they have certain uh, strengths, certain weapons, if you will, to bear, and how that, in a sense, it helps to define this pre-war world that, that that you were referring to, Chris. But uh, it, it seems that that one of the things that the war does, and correct me if I'm wrong here, does it perhaps shake that up to such an extent as to create the opening 
as to create an opening uh, for women to exploit that would not have been there uh, had there hypoth- you know, counterfactually been no entry into the war to begin with. I'm not, I'm not sure I'm following the question very clearly. Um, I thought where you were headed was that because prohibition is starting to emerge as a war measure, it ceases to be an important um, um, anti-factor because the saloon interests are losing their power uh, in part because suffer, uh, prohibition is starting to be successful in part because they're associated with, with uh, German Americans. But so I'm, that's where I thought you were going. So I'm not sure I, that, that, that is the direction I'm going. I, I, I'm, I'm wondering about, you know, does that, you know, in terms of talking about the interrelationship between uh, the first world war and women's suffrage, does, is that perhaps a factor that uh, were that um, were maybe, that we haven't really raised up, up until this point, this idea that it's not just about what happens with the women, it's what happens who are uh, campaigning uh, to get the vote. It's also what happens to those groups, what, what's happening to those groups that are have been uh, organizing and, and fighting against that vote, not just the female mm-hmm. anti-suffragists, but the male groups who've been tied to interests who now suddenly find their worlds disrupted by America's entry into the war. I think that's true. I think it's that's more true as an explanation for prohibition um, and why the prohibition um, amendment moves through so quickly um, in in the end of the war and, and then sort of gets implemented in 1920, um, in part because there was no organized um, opposition uh, to prohibition except the 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 brewing industry, um, which, as, as Lynn points out, was, um, you know, was was decimated uh, because of its connections to to Germany and German Americans. Um, there is it is certainly the case that brewing indus- industry and, and others were, did uh, oppose women's suffrage, um, in part because they believed rightly uh, that um, that increasing voice for women would would probably increase the voice for for restrictions on alcohol. Um, it is, uh, and there were some suffrage women, and I think Carrie Chaplin Cat was among them, who were quite willing to um, sort of dredge up uh, sort of German anti-suffragism um, as evidence for the rightness of their cause. Right, um, that suddenly the war's on, and if your enemy is a you know is if your enemy is a friend of Germany, then then clearly uh, it, that puts you in the right. Um, so, but I think it's uh, it was less central to the women's suffrage debate than it was to the prohibition debate. I, I would agree. Um, though you raise an interesting question, I'll have to think more about it, Mark. <laughs> uh, well, it, but uh, I also wanted to, to mention uh, another dynamic because one of the things that that that, the, that that prompted the question is this consideration of how you know. E- and both you've already brought this in that you can't consider these groups in isolation. And another element, and, and there's already been some reference to this, is preparedness. Uh, you know, did, to what degree did did women's involvement in preparedness campaigns uh, help them uh, in in terms of making the case for their civic engagement? Versus, to what degree did uh, preparedness campaigns represent a diversion of energies in terms of women's participation in the public sphere? Well, what, one of the things I found really interesting about preparedness uh, women is they're not necessarily anti-suffrage, but they um, and they're not necessarily you know against the vote per se, but they're not happy with the suffrage movement's standing uh, stance on peace. But one of the things that happens that I find so interesting is they become 
so politically active and they have camps and they have parades and marches. Um, and so I think that there is, I think that your point about the, they're another way in which women are taking to political activism, even though they're not necessarily doing it in the name of earning the right to vote, they are sort of demonstrating women's citizenship. And that's part of the sort of vocabulary of, of the war era. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, and Lynn, you raise a good point uh, that I think a lot of um, people, you know, haven't thought about this since, um, you know, since their high school history textbooks um, sort of overlook, which is sort of thinking that women weren't involved in politics until they got the right to vote. Right. And that's really not true, um, that women were deeply involved in, in uh, civic life, in public life in public debates about a wide range of topics. They were uh, denied the right to vote in most areas, um, varied by state and locality. Um, And they were, even when they were engaged in public debates and civic debates, they were often excluded from serious decision-making power Mm -hmm. over decisions, budgets, staffing, anything like that. Um, But it would be wrong to think that that women were not political before they, they got the right to vote. Um, but for for women who in the years from 1914 to 1917, um, who are you know watching Americans uh, or watching Europe at war, uh, and trying to sort of figure out what um, you know what America's role will be, how America should respond, uh, the preparedness movement um, is a real opportunity for them. They say we want to make sure that America is ready for war. Um, that it has the military it needs, that it has the citizens it needs, uh, and that it has the women uh, it has the women that it needs. Um, and a lot of prepared women preparedness organizations focus on sort of uh, mobilizing women for uh, for military defense and and patriotism and, and civic project more generally. Um, I think the, these women um, would often fall in the category of women who were willing to put the suffrage question to the side for the duration, um, who felt, you know, sort of, uh, you know, country first, uh, war first, and that women who prove themselves to be good citizens will um, be rewarded with the vote after the war. Um, and you definitely see that, uh, that rhetoric coming through. And this gets at what you were saying before, um, you know, that that's going to make them very angry when they see uh, sort of pacifist women um, and who and suffragist women who are really sort of trying to um, to democratize uh, the the country and bring world peace at the same time, and it's, it's almost uh, they're almost at polar opposites. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Does it also create this sense of frustration among the women who are very prominently campaigning for suffrage? The sense that it, this is yet another. Uh, distraction on the road to uh, the vote that 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 you know, they because you're because descri- both of you have have referenced this momentum that's been uh, had that has uh, been developing over the previous decade and then now all of a sudden you have this group of of women who are arguing we need to uh, set this aside it, it, it's like you know we we finally up to speed and now here we are having to uh, maybe uh, slow down a bit and let something uh, some a more immediate priority pass us. Why? Did, did that create a, a, a certain amount of tension as well? I'm not sure that it did. I think that um, what worried um, 
women on the other side of preparedness about preparedness was preparedness. The, the militarization was of the nation, the, the call, for example, for universal military uh, training in, in high schools, that kind of thing was really alarming to these women. And so although many of the suffrage leaders had suffrage as, you know, their sort of one issue, uh, I think that in the in the period we're talking about, there was a tremendous amount of anxiety about preparedness and about the move the the move towards war. And so that it wasn't a kind of unal, a uni cause kind of approach. But I may be wrong about that, but I think I think that's the case. Yeah, I wonder um if, if we should just talk about Jane Addams for a minute, because I think that her experience um, really sheds a lot of light on on the, the complications that we were talking about before, right? And so this is, uh, you know, really the, the you know, one of the most popular figures in, in the progressive era, widely known for her work uh, at Hull House in Chicago with uh, children and immigrants um, and others, um, and really in some ways a national hero um, to, to many Americans. Uh, and for Jane Addams, the coming of war in Europe in 1914 is a is a is a catastrophe, right? It's a political catastrophe, a, a humanitarian crisis. Um, she is deeply involved in trying to make sure that um, that civilians and others in Belgium and France um, have food and shelter and all kinds of things that are as they're displaced in a refugee crisis. Um, but Jane Addams, um, who was a lifelong suffragist, um, doesn't, you know, she sees this war through a gendered lens and she is quite uh, convinced um, that if women had a real voice in politics, if they had a real voice in their own country's politics and as well as globally, um, that, uh, that the war um, wouldn't have happened. Uh, and that if they were given a voice right away, that they could actually have a role in stopping it. Um, that uh, there was still a belief in 1914-15 and even onward that that the war could be ended through uh, compromise and truce um, rather than um, uh, you know unconditional uh, surrender by one side. Um, and so uh, Adams doesn't really see this as a choice of you know well should I go for suffrage or should I go for peace? It's a uh, it's all one it's all one thing bound up for her. I think that's an excellent point, and I think that's the case for many, for many women uh, of the uh, of the era. Would that be? Um, but I think, would, would you? Sorry, um, I was going to ask. Would, would that be true for the women in preparedness as well? The the, the sense that you know, that they wanted to have a voice uh, uh, in 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 the vote, maybe to offset this claim that they felt that their, in a sense, demand for preparedness also need to be registered. I, I don't see them talking about suffrage that much. I think they are they are focused on on um, on preparing the nation, and they argue that women have a role in this. But I don't think that they are focused on or talk very much about uh, about suffrage per se. But I, this is not my area of strength, so I could be wrong about that. There may yeah. be a specialized study that says something else. I, I think you're right. I think for the most part, um, I don't. I also don't see them talking about suffrage. Um, uh, and when they do, it's um, it's a it's something that they feel can be talked about later, or um, is uh, is really part of a broader package of of women's um, nationalism uh, to a large extent. Um, 
Could I could I shift the conversation a, a little bit? And I I'm gonna I have a segue about peace. Is but um, please do. Good. I because I think particularly um, for a listening audience that doesn't know very much about the details of of the su- suffrage activism during the war, it's a, might be well to point out that what happens is when the war um, when the United States is close to um, joining. Uh, the war, the the main suffrage organization, NASA, as we as we uh, call it, um, endorses the war and pulls away from the suffrage movement. The more younger, smaller, militant group led by Alice Paul, that's usually associated with the Women's Party, um, refuses to take a stance on the war. And the two organizations, which were split over other issues such as do we do a national amendment? Do we use political leverage? Do we, you know, work against the Democrats because they're the party in power? This group, they, they were already in conflict, and now they really become in conflict because one organization says, um, let's support the war and show by our good citizenship and our loyalty and our efforts to raise funds and promote um, uh, food conservation that we are uh, uh, good citizens who deserve the vote. Whereas the women associated with what will become the women's party pick at the white house, um, and create a kind of disruptive power. And so that's, that's really the other big question about suffrage in the war. Was it the good women who were doing the service side of the war that helps to promote suffrage? Or is it the picketers who, uh, help to promote, um, the final passage of the suffrage movement. If, if I may uh, uh, throw in one additional question, to what degree was that embrace a, a a very conscious need to push back against the women like Jane Addams, who had taken such a prominent stance and uh, against the war? And to what degree did the organizations like NASA feel that they had to come out in favor of the war in order to uh, in order to offset any possible undoing of the gains that they had made in suffrage up to that point? I think it's uh, absolutely central. Um, and NASA, uh, at both a national level and many uh, sort of NASA chapters at local levels, um, uh, essentially sort of drum out uh, pacifist members of their organization. Um, or silence them, um, in part because they are afraid that um, that too much peace talk um, from from these groups will discredit the, the organization. And this gets very intense by the summer of, of 1917 um, with the passage of the Espionage Act, and uh, which is amended with the Sedition Act uh, of 1918 a year later, um, which really makes um, sort of statements or publications questioning the war into federal crimes. Um, And so uh, NASA really does um, uh, take great steps um, to to silence um, the the pacifist members, um, and they're doing it um, in part because they're facing pressure in the press from from federal agents uh, and from uh, pro-war women within the ranks of their own organization. There's a lot of tension within women's groups uh, as uh, as you get into the um, uh, beginning of 1917 over 
over what's appropriate. And um, the I, oh, I just lost my train of thought. I had something I was going to say about um, the the pressure on women, but I've lost it. I'll come back to it if I if I think of it. Sorry. But I think that, I think uh, to, to go back to your earlier point, Lynn. I think I mean you raised the the million dollar question. Right, which is, um, did you know, was the the suffrage victory uh, really the work of the sort of moderate women in NASA who cast their lot with the war um, and are patient on suffrage, um, or the the radical women in the National Women's Party who are saying, no, if this is a war for democracy, that means democracy here at at home, um, and I think um, you know. Uh, it, it's a, it's obviously a relationship between the two of them. Uh, but I'd be curious to know, um, you know, you framed the question. I'd be curious to know your, how you would answer it. Uh, I always loved to, when I was in the teaching mode, I always loved to do that, to ask students what they thought, because I think often the answer comes from one's own political persuasion. Do you want to be the person on the picket line or do you want to be the, uh, the, um, the moderate, but we know what works best, uh, protest or, um, um, moderation. But I happen to think that it's a combination of the two things that the two types of approach, the proving our service and protesting, um, sort of work together in a sort of interesting way. So, so example, the, the moderate women who are so um, active in supporting the war and using their publicity machine to show that women are supporting the war. There are parades, there's, uh, there are articles, there's an enormous amount of interest and publicity about women's role in, um, and particularly as volunteers, but also women munitions workers doing um, their service. So on the one hand, you have all of this enormous um, attention to um, to um, the suffrage women who are supporting the war. But on the other hand, when Alice Paul's uh, group picket and then are arrested and they're force-fed and it becomes um, a huge publicity issue of another sort, uh, the Wilson White House is very nervous about about these women and what they're up to, particularly because they're worried about the uh, congressional elections of 1918. There's a lot of discussion about whether the bad press about how these women are being treated will hurt the Democratic Party. And I think a lot of Wilson's decision to come out in support of the amendment, which is what both organizations wanted, uh, has a lot to do with um, his trying to stem the bad publicity of Alice Paul's group. But on the other hand, when he goes to Congress and makes his impassioned speech, what he talks about is the extraordinary service that the moderate suffragists uh, had um, had given the nation in time of war. So he he's able to use that as his rationale, which is pretty a pretty important piece of his um, explanation of why women needed um, the vote. Yeah, I think that um, it's a it's a it, to me that, that that back and forth dynamic is really important. And in some ways, the radicalism of the of the National Women's Party, which certainly angered many people in NASA, um, but it also gave them 
cover. Yes. Uh, who seem um, less threatening than, than, you know, than, than they were. And we see this in social movements of all kinds in American history, right? That the, you know, that the, the picketers make, um, make the moderates um, who were otherwise uh, unacceptable into uh, the acceptable option. Um, but the other part I think that we forget is that the National Women's Party wasn't just, um, wasn't just rhetoric, uh, you know, radical rhetoric and 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 uh, images and and protests and marches. They were all they were also building institutions on the ground, so that they could actually follow up um, and do the kind of you know kind of um, the tours, the public speaking, um, and kind of you know call out um, you know. Uh, get out, get out the vote, particularly in areas where women could vote. Um, so, you know, so, so uh, there are strands of, of radicalism hiding under NASA's umbrella and there are strands of, of moderate, um, you know, mundane organization hiding under the NWP. Uh, if I could just underline that really good point, I think that one of the things that um, the Women's Party does um, in, in the beginning in 1913 and 14 is say, okay, there women have, women have the vote in X states. So we're going to organize them as voters to vote, uh, to show women's ability to have some political leverage, particularly on the democratic party. And so there's some very savvy um, political leveraging going on here that, um, um, as you say, is another piece of the story, and it's something that NASA didn't approve of. They they wanted to be nonpartisan, um, but um, the um, women's women's party and Alice Paul's group had a much different uh, approach, and it was really, uh, really um, brilliant. I think both of you have been talking about this in terms of the various organizations that have been uh, campaigning for the suffrage. I was wondering if we could broaden it a bit to talk more about how women, the participation of women uh, in the war effort in, in, in all the myriad ways might have shaped perceptions. And I'm thinking here in particular about your most recent book, Lynn, because uh, it, you, in reading it, it's, it's very fascinating to, to see all the ways in which women were involved in, in, in uh, the, the munitions workers that you've already referenced, uh, you know, taking up men's jobs in places like shipyards, but also the, the ways in which they encouraged uh, the, the men in their lives to, to get involved, the way they participated in, in campaigns on the home front. Is there any sense that these helped to shift opinions in any way in terms of the idea, uh, thinking among men and maybe even uh, – and also uh, – anti-suffrage women, that women had demonstrated that not just through their activism it, it, politically, but through their participation civically, that their time to vote, uh, to, or to uh, receive the vote had come? Um, well, yes, I think that, that there's so much publicity given to, um, uh, to women's activism. And as you say, it's some of its, uh, people who are working. Some of it is people who are working as volunteers. We haven't talked about all the publicity given to women who go overseas in various capacities. Uh, so I, I definitely think that there, uh, the American public was law offered a lot of evidence for women's good citizenship, but they were also by virtue of women running around wearing uniforms and marching and challenging conventional notions of proper behavior, there could, uh, could have also led to a certain amount of backlash against, uh, against women uh, crossing boundaries, particularly 
in terms of the kinds of work they were doing or wearing uniforms or uh, uh, even serving in, in, the, in the military. Yeah, there's a, uh, there are sort of ways in which uh, the scholars who've looked at sort of gender and war have, have looked at uh, not just how it uh, upsets traditional gender notions, but often uh, how it also confirms them. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, through, you know, sort of uh, the centrality of masculinity to soldiering, um, and then the role way that that uh, highlights roles for women that are uh, distinct, right? That if, you know, if the ideal citizen in wartime is a male soldier, then that means that, um, you know, that women are going to have to, uh, in some ways, either uh, mimic those roles, right? By saying we, we're doing things that soldiers are doing. We're, we're even sort of wearing uniforms um, or um, doing things that are quite distinct, um, uh, you know, and, and roles, um, you know, very sort of uh, sort of feminized uh, sort of gendered visions of what a woman should do in, in war also appear. Um, the caring mother, the, the waiting, the waiting wife, um, you know, all these uh, uh, kinds of images, um, lots of posters of, uh, of a uh, lot more posters of angels than of uh, than of Joan of Arc, um, you know. But there are there are both images there. Um, but I think uh, it, it, it's it's very difficult, and women are navigating this uh, not in new ways, right? Um, they've also they've been receiving mixed messages about women, what women can be and do for for their their whole lives. Um, but the context in which they're doing that is is changing. I think that's an excellent point. I'm also thinking about all the attention to women knitters, um, uh, which is uh, part of that piece of of doing very sort of traditional domestic things to uh, support the war effort. Yeah. And the war and this, you know, uh, Lynn, you write about in in your book, the the war, you know, certainly does open up some uh, new jobs for women that had not been there before. But the economic... uh, 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 sort of impact on the U.S. is much shorter and much less in World War One than World War Two. Um, so, um, so to the extent that women uh, enter the workforce in greater numbers in World War One, there a lot of them are women who um, are young women or unmarried women who might have otherwise been in the paid workforce, um, or they end up in very sex segregated kinds of, of positions. So, uh, you don't see the Rosie the Riveter story that you get in, in World War Two and. And even that story may not be all that true either. Yes to both. (laughs) Um, It's true that one of the things that's sort of startling is that people were so convinced during the war that such change would emerge because of all the visibility of women uh, in the workforce and in uh, volunteer work. And in fact, uh, there's not much to show for it after uh, the war in that regard. Women's economic opportunities um, don't open up dramatically, particularly uh, sex segregated labor returns to its former uh, former pattern. Um, African-American women who had been um, given the opportunity to work in factories for the first time because of the labor shortages find themselves back in domestic and agricultural labor after the war. So a lot of the pro- what we might view as the promise of the war for offering women more opportunities Uh, really was limited by war's end. And in fact, what you really end up with is the major thing accomplished um, through the war is suffrage. That's the one sort of clear thing that we can say is 
This the war helped suffrage. Suffrage is something that was concrete that emerged uh, in the in the post war years. And that gets to something that I, I was hoping maybe you could elaborate upon, uh, Chris, because it, with all the concerns about uh, Americanism and the, the, this this re, this intertwining of uh, engagement and participation in the war with this definition of American citizenship. It, it seems that that was that that idea of what it meant to be American citizen was in a bit of a flux, and that it was in a way that women were able to take advantage of. Or, or, or am I misinterpreting that? Uh, no, I mean I I think it was in flux, um, which is in some ways what it means to be a citizen is always in flux. Um, what it is, is it's under, under the microscope or under the spotlight, um, in ways that it maybe hadn't been before. Um, that, uh, you know, what, it, what the federal government can ask of you, um, is, is a much more important question when they're mobilizing, uh, for war. Um, and so in that sense, the war makes citizenship, uh, a, a necessary debate to have, um, because uh, it has to be, the question has to be answered for the period of the war effort. But it also means that those ongoing debates about, you know, what is it, um, you know, does your obligation as a citizen vary if you're a man or a woman, um, is, uh, you know, that, that, that's going to become a wartime debate in, uh, in, because of the, the needs of war mobilization. So yes, there are opportunities, um, for women, but um, and they lev- and or they leverage them when they can, both uh, organized uh, women in organizations as well as, you know, just ordinary women um, who are figuring out, you know, how to write a letter to the federal government and get something, or how to find a job in a, uh, you know, in a in a war related industry. Um, so yes, they're they're taking advantage of those opportunities, but I think the the real story is that is um, what the country demands of people um, in in wartime um, that uh, the opportunities are are less significant in some ways than than the obligations um, which are which are enforced um, and which uh, because of restrictive laws like the espionage and sedition acts are are very hard to question or to challenge and that those those obligations seem to be much more pressing than any that women have faced up until this time. I mean, I think back to previous wars and women were very much involved in them, but there was never a sense that the government was, 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 was needing them to step up and and, and assume uh, roles that uh, were seen as outside the canyon. You have examples where women did do those things uh, were individual cases, but it, 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 in World War One, the, the scale of it meant that women had to do it much more uh, collectively in, or in, in much greater numbers than had ever been the uh, experience in American history. Yes, I think, uh, I mean, in that sense, it's because it is part of this unprecedented uh, mobilization for war. Um, and particularly an unprecedented uh, kind of federal mobilization for war that is necessarily going to make demands on women that had not been made before. Um, there, of course, were women involved uh, on, on the home front and even at the front um, in, in the Civil War and other conflicts. Uh, but because the war uh, appeared to require the mobilization of all of American society, uh, its labor, uh, its finances uh, and its um, and its 
and its minds, its its politics, its political views, um, then that meant re- mobilizing uh, women as well. Um, so women are are you know are recruited for for labor, but also tapped for for it. Th- that knitting um, is not just symbolic. Um, that's actually how uh, a, a su- substantial proportion of American uniforms and bandages were produced. Um, they're they're. Their purchase of war bonds mattered because women had had money, uh, you know, and their and their ideas and their viewpoints had to be mobilized um, as well or suppressed when they were dissenting. I, th- I think there's a uh, I would agree with all that. I think there's a sort of interesting problem about mobilizing women as volunteers to, to leave aside the women who are working. And that is that um, the um, American women were so organized in their clubs and their organizations, and these were women all sort of now ready to use their organizations to serve the nation in um, various ways. And the federal government really um, was sort of, I, I think, not really prepared for women to come in and decide what they wanted to do with mobilization. There's a lot of tension between federal officials and on state level officials as well and women's groups that have their own ideas of how they're going to mobilize women. And a good example of this is the uh, food conservation drive, which is one that is um, um, allegedly volunteer, although there's a lot of coercion uh, implicit in that's something that Chris has written about. But what's interesting is women wanted, the women's organizations wanted to, and had their own plans of how they would help, promote the food conservation drive, but Herbert Hoover pretty much undercuts their decision-making process and sets it up. He uses women's organizations and they do agree to um, to follow the federal gui- guidelines, but there's tension between federal, federal authorities and um, women's groups on, on the ground. So if to, to build upon uh, what you were saying in terms of how there is definitely a benefit to for women's suffrage activism in terms of their involvement in the war, when do they start seeing it? Because we've, we've also talked about how a lot of women were wanting to set the issue aside. And yet you have, within a very short period of time, you, you have the, the end of the war in November of 1918, and you've... Uh, very uh, very shortly thereafter, the passage of the Nineteenth Amendment. When does that uh, does that uh, you know? When, when do we see that 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 impact really uh, at play in terms of the suffrage debate? Well, I just want to mention something about the dates that I think is kind of interesting. Wilson finally commits to the amendment in January of nineteen eighteen. It takes Congress well over a year to um to to follow follow through and i think this speaks again to the sort of persistence of very traditional notions about women's place and it's also um you know the south is an important part of that uh that particular story so i just want to say you know it's it seems fast but nonetheless there's a long period before the amendment is, is sent to the states and then it takes another year for that to happen. It's not so surprising that the amendment and process in the states would take a year, but it does take a long time for Congress to approve. So that's just a little piece about when you were talking about the speed with which things happen that I wanted, um, I wanted to underline. 
Um, as soon as women get the vote in 1920, uh, a whole range of women start organizing uh, to figure out ways in which to use the vote, particularly as lobbyists. This includes African-Americans who were um, particularly interested in anti-lynching legislation. It includes conservative women who have their own agendas and it includes liberal progressive women who are trying to promote social justice reforms in the 1920s. And so there's a lot of uh, effort to try to figure out what to do with the vote once it's achieved. I'm not sure if that's exactly the question uh, you were asking, Mark. I may have may have sent, gone off in a different direction. Um, that, that, that's, that's okay. I, I was basically, what, what I was getting at is, is, at what point do we start to see the perceptions about women relating to the war begin to uh, influence the suffrage debate in what ways? I think uh, Lynn uh, touched on that a, a, a while ago when she talked about uh, Woodrow Wilson's speech uh, endorsing women's suffrage. Um, and he is, uh, and I think this is an important turning point um, because there were certainly uh, pro-suffrage uh, politicians, you know, sort of pro-suffrage male politicians who from the very beginning of the war um, tap into women's wartime service and loyalty as, uh, as arguments for their cause. Um, and, uh, but Wilson had always been a little bit silent or evasive on the suffrage question. Um, he was, uh, you know, aware that there were divisions within his party. Um, he uh, you know, his own mind, I think, was conflicted on, on this issue. Um, he certainly, um, uh, his views on it evolved, I suppose, is what we might say uh, today. Um, but, um, but in that speech, um, he, and, uh, he does actually sort of say that, uh, you know, women's service in the war, um, have, you know, means that we should, um, you know, we should reward them with, with the vote. Uh, today, and so I think you know that's a if you if you're looking for that kind of turning point, that's that's where I would look. But I was thinking, do, do you hear that point echoed in uh, the subsequent in the in the debates in Congress or the debates? Absolutely. Yes. Uh, yes, I think in every in every state legislature when they're debating ratification, I I would be shocked if 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 there I would be shocked if there was one where war didn't wartime service didn't come up. I haven't looked at all of them, and that would take a lifetime, but um, yeah, I'd be surprised. If I could actually now bring it back to uh, the point that you were raising just a, a, a moment ago, Lynn, which is you were talking about the, uh, the, the, the effects of suffrage upon uh, women's activism. And, and that really raises an interesting question, I, I think, that you know, what difference did suffrage really make to women at the time? You know, was it something that was, that was uh, uh, appreciated as, as, a, uh, as, a, as a justified uh, award, reward for uh, their activism? Uh, why should we care about it a, a century later? Chris, do you want to start with this? Since I've already talked a little bit about the 20s. Yeah. No, I think that um, uh, there was a sense uh, for a lot of people in the, that the 1920s were going to be different um, because women could vote. Uh, 
Uh, and there were efforts uh, by a lot of the suffrage organization leaders um, start going in, into civic work more generally. The League of Women Voters, um, which of course is still very active today, um, comes out of the, the 1920s with the sense that uh, women voters needed to be educated about their new role and learn about candidates and parties and uh, and that the League of Women Voters could provide this as a service to both women voters and men voters. Uh, and that certainly is, is part of it. Uh, it is the case that um, it turns out uh, that uh, women's suffrage didn't uh, change American politics as much as uh, some people expected, both its supporters and its opponents. Um, in part because women um, generally, uh, you know, don't vote that differently uh, from from men. Um, there are different times in American history where you can see a gender gap um, in in the electorate, and we're in a moment like that right now. Uh, but uh, that's not always the case. Um, and it turned out in the 1920s it it, it wasn't the case. Um, so it's not like one party uh, really benefited from the expansion uh, of women's suffrage. Um, and in fact, it, it, it didn't, um, you know, sort of fundamentally shake up American politics. Um, uh, in, but uh, but that doesn't mean that it that it that it didn't matter uh, for sure. I would agree with with everything that um, that you say, Chris. I think there was a kind of real sadness, however, on the part of women who had hoped that their vote would lead to social justice reforms because they're up against a very conservative political climate. And there's only one major piece of legislation on the national level, which is a um, the Shepherd Towner bill, which is a health health related bill that's considerably watered down. And then it's, um, it's passed, but it doesn't stay uh, in place um, for more than a few years. So on the one hand, they had the sense that the vote was going to offer these extraordinary opportunities. And yet ultimately, although women are, uh, active and they're engaged in parties and they're engaged in lobbying, they don't have a lot to show for it uh, in the era of the 1920s. And so there's a kind of, um, it's a very disappointing quality among um, many of the women who have been active uh, uh, in the suffrage movement to see, um, to see the sort of negative political climate of the 19, of the 1920s, um, very conservative era in that, in that regard. Yeah, and I think that that's connected to the you know when we often, when we tell the story of the the lost generation um, you know in the 1920s we almost we tell it almost exclusively about uh, men and male authors people like Fitzgerald and Hemingway and and Faulkner um, but that sense of of, of loss and disappointment um, is also I mean it, it's 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 widespread in the sense that this war should have been for something. Um, and when it turned out that less changed than people thought, whether it was in international relations, in the culture, in the League of Nations, in uh, in domestic politics, um, then it led many people to conclude that, well, maybe that war was was for nothing or for the wrong reasons. Um, and so a lot of that disillusion is uh, partly about how bad the war had been, but also about how little changed after the war was over. Mm -hmm. I can't help but think how much more uh deep that how much more deep that how much deeper that disappointment was for women because whereas for so many people who had expectations for a new world after world war one those uh aspirations those hopes have been built up over four years for these women who've been spending decades campaigning for the vote 
to to ha- I can only imagine how much greater their anticipation for change must have been by that point. I, I think that's true, and I think that um, the other group that we can point out uh, in that regard is African Americans, men and women, who had expectations about their service during the war, uh, making a difference, earning citizenship, had expectations that the Great Migration would make an enormous difference. And um, the, the decades is starts off with a, a series of horrible race riots, which really, you know, are were a kind of wake up call for how limited um, the their opportunities would be in the in the upcoming uh, decade. Well, that is seems to be a good place to uh, end it for for now. Uh, Chris Lynn, I want to thank you for taking some time out of your schedules to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you. All right. Thank you. 